Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The arc of justice just definitely bends towards um, doing the right thing. And I think that that'd be my biggest advice for people coming into the industry is never ever compromise on that because it really, your reputation compounds over time and it takes just one bad decision to, to lose that. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Today I'm welcoming Matt Joss, the Chief Investment Officer of Maven Funds Management to the microphone. G'day Matt. Hey, thanks very much for having me on. Very excited to be here. Thank you. Okay, now Matt, he's been a portfolio manager and an analyst and he's now in the process of launching Maven Funds Management, his own managed fund. This sounds like a lot of hard work. Why launch your own fund? Wouldn't it be easier working for someone else? Yeah, good question. <laughs> Definitely would be. <laughs> I guess it kind of came about when I was leaving the previous service that I was running, Motley Full Pro. So we had a very large number of clients that would um, manage their money for a, a few years and had, had some good returns. And I really actually built a really cool community, which was what, what I loved about it. So everyone, we had forums there where people would talk to each other and we would kind of teach each other investing. And yeah, so when I was leaving there, I was originally planning just to kind of manage my own money and enjoy private investing and all the freedom and um, that brings. Um, but I had some really, really kind of um, touching messages, honestly, like from all the former clients as, as I was announcing I was leaving. Some had donated large amounts to charity. Um, we had one client who I've talked about before that was able to you know, set up a family in, in Mexico and um, does all sorts of cool stuff. So we had a few different guys who had made good returns and looked to reach out. And yeah, just hearing about how it helped people's lives, that kind of got me thinking more of um, managing other people's money again. And I think the other big difference is uh, just your process and everything gets, for me at least, a bit sharper. I like to get that kind of feedback from clients. Um, I like to interact with them rather than, I think it can be kind of a, a lonely game investing because you're just going off and thinking about things by yourself, which I definitely enjoy and uh, I do like to do that a lot, but I like that interaction as well. And I think it just adds a bit more meaning. If it's something that you want to focus on being really good at, it doesn't make too much sense to just be doing it yourself in your lounge. I know some you know, some good friends of mine that have gone and done that. They made enough money. They don't have to don't have to work and just manage their own. But yeah, I guess after a few years, I hear from a lot of them that they, it gets very samey and you're sitting there in your pajamas or whatever else. Um, and the wife's wondering what you really do for a job. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think that just kind of keeps you sharp if you're always, if you're out there, you know, trying to work with other people and help other people. Um, so that was the biggest one. And then just started thinking about like how I would design a fund if I was doing it myself. And, you know, there's quite a few things that we do that are a bit different from the rest of the industry. So just trying to kind of, I, I just like the challenge of like a, a ground up designing things the way that we want to do it. So, yeah. So what is involved in starting a fund? Yeah, it's quite a bit. So it's been a, been a journey. I think I iterated a few times starting out thinking I would do kind of the, the smallest structure possible. So there's a lot of different ways that you can manage money. There's things called separately managed accounts, which you're basically, it's kind of like you have access to someone's brokerage account. I didn't go that way. The problem is that it doesn't scale very well. Um, but for me, it means partnering with another fund administrator and responsible entity who kind of take care of a lot of the 
onboarding and that type of thing with clients, a lot of managing the accounts and frees up a lot of my time to do focus more on the investing uh, and still the trading as well. It's quite a journey, I guess, just going through that process and then product disclosure statement, which everyone um, has to read before they join the fund, laying out all the kind of terms of everything else that we're doing. Um, and yeah. product disclosure statement is something that every fund, any, every kind of uh, financial manager does need to provide to a client. And I guess it's a really important thing to set up in when you're doing a managed fund. Is that the case? Yeah, that's correct. So every fund that's um, available to um, everyday people, so to retail investors, has to have a product disclosure statement. There is a lower threshold if you're only um, opening your fund to wholesale and sophisticated investors, so basically basically wealthier people is the test. Then you only need to do a lower standard, which is an information memorandum. We're open to everyone, so we have a product disclosure statement. Um, and it's kind of required that people read through that, even on the application form. It'll, it'll uh, make sure that you download it and, and have a read. So yeah, it just, just covers all the terms of the fund, basically. So traditionally managed funds seem to be quite um, distant, remote organisations and they've got their very strong looking logos. And what's the difference between what you're doing and say a Magellan or one of the big other managed funds? Yeah, I guess in, in structure, there's not very much difference. Like structurally, we're set up similarly. I guess my focus is on smaller companies. So we're going to be keeping the fund a lot smaller. I don't have any ambitions to um, kind of gather assets, as they call it, and, and, and grow your funds under management to be hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars because that pushes you out of being able to buy those smaller companies. Um, but the other stuff I do, the thing that we do different is really focusing on on a small team. And I think that some of the big um, funds, particularly ones, I don't think it works very well often where you have this investment by committee approach. So you have kind of 10 people all trying to chip in on what um, is happening with the fund. And if you look to some of the best investors, it doesn't tend to be that way. You know, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are two people and most of that's Warren. And I think the advantages of a smaller team is that you kind of have one brain or a couple of brains that have all this information uh, integrated within it because when you're investing you're trying to find little anomalies and differences and that's harder to do when all that information is held in a lot of different people and I think there can be a diffusion of responsibility with with um, some of the really big funds where no one person is really accountable or responsible and a lot of politics comes in so people try and pitch an idea to get in the fund once it's in they feel like they have to defend it because it's their whole careers on the line and it just adds to a lot of career risk stuff so yeah i guess it's just really thinking about what we can avoid with some of that with some of that stuff that's an interesting insight into funds that there's actually politics involved in making money and it's something (laughs) i think there's a lot of investors who wouldn't even be aware of of that yeah it's a bizarre world and um yeah there's there's a very i think it's a very political industry the finance industry there's a lot of image stuff um and i think that people there's a lot of careerist stuff so people don't have any tolerance for realizing that they've made a mistake and i think that leads to all sorts of problems where people kind of hug the benchmark and don't want to take too many you know positions that are different from the rest of the market they all kind of it, it adds to that herd mentality that we all say it's not just retail investors by by any means that have that it happens with institutions as well what's your definition of small caps what's the universe of uh, stocks that you're looking at yeah, it's a good, good question because we um, the fund's called the Maven Smaller Companies Fund um, and we're definitely biased or focused towards smaller businesses, but we want to identify 
um, kind of the big dominant businesses of tomorrow and try and find them while they're still small. So we also want to hold for that journey. And that's a bit different from some other small cap funds um, who kind of have some limit where they say it's less than 250 million to small cap. Once it grows past that, they, they, st- they sell because they can't hold it um, or because they don't want to. And what uh, what we want to do at Maven is find those companies if we can. Obviously, there's a, that's our hard job is trying to find them. If we can find them, we don't want to be forced to sell them just because it's going really well. So we actually have quite a broad universe in our mandate it's anything outside the asx 50 so the 50 largest companies Um, and even then if a company grows into the asx 50 that we've held we can continue to hold it provided it's continuing to hit our other attributes that we're looking for and particularly growth so we want to basically our goal is to find something small that's growing fast and has durable competitive advantage and then hold for the duration of the high growth period. So if that grows at a high rate for 10, 15 years, we want to hold for the whole journey. And I think that's where you get start to see the real compounding of returns that can be quite incredible. So what's your starting point? How do you start identifying the, the kind of companies that you're interested in investing in? I'm sorry, I'll just mention again. So it's Australia and New Zealand as well. So we can invest in New Zealand companies as part of our mandate when you asked that before. And um, pre-IPO companies, we can have up to 10% of companies that are planning to IPO. But yeah, stepping back to um, the question, what, what's your process? The process for me is really casting quite a wide net and looking at literally every business in the, on the ASX and NZX and filtering out fairly quickly ones that don't match what we're looking for. So what we're trying to look for is really a really great business model and um, some signs of competitive advantage. And then we do a lot of valuation work on top. But the first kind of cut is, is this the type of business we want to own? Because there's most businesses on the ASX, maybe 85, 90% of them aren't the type of businesses that we'd want to own, like kind of full stop. So there's a lot of speculative miners on the ASX, maybe 40% or so are um, cash burning speculative. I'm not talking about miners that have cash flows either. These are just, you know, a guy standing next to a hole in the ground. <laughs> um, and some of those work out. There can be like lottery tickets. And I think it seduces a lot of investors, particularly, um, you know, beginner investors that they see some story on a hot copper message board or whatever else of someone else who's struck it rich. But and then there's kind of speculative biotechs that are another kind of group and what I call perpetual loss makers. So companies that just keep raising and burning cash. It's really interesting how um, a lot of people don't realize that they hear the stories about biotech companies and the exciting developments, mm. but they're really yeah. just taking a lot of money, aren't they, to mm-hmm. to keep trying to develop their products. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think you can just look at how many shares, sometimes you can get how many shares are on issue and track that over time. And that's probably the cleanest way to look at it. You'll see companies just add hundreds of millions and billions of shares as they're constantly diluting shareholders. Um, and it's very easy to miss that. Otherwise, it's one of the biggest traps, I think, on the ASX because our market makes it very easy to issue new shares. It's not as easy in some other markets like the US. Companies can just do it here themselves. And so, yeah, I was just going to mention when I was on TV, your money, your call, people would call in and it was almost every call was about some speculative mining or biotech company. And I just had a um, spreadsheet which pulled in some data and my answer would almost always be the same. So it probably wasn't the best guess because... (laughs) 80% 80% of the time, I just look and just say, look, it's just burning cash and diluting you. Um, unless you have a very good idea of why that's changed, and maybe new management or something like that, I'd be very cautious of those types of businesses um, because it's just a slow bleed. Like it always, management's always going to be talking a big story. You'll always think it's next six months they'll launch something or drill that hole or whatever else. And in the meantime, you're just bleeding out. Um, so yeah, just want to try and avoid that if you can. 
Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, so we talked about the, the kind of shares that you don't invest in. What are the kind of shares that do really um, pique your interest? Yeah, the focus for us is companies that have the ability to compound high returns on invested capital over a long time. So that means they have some kind of barrier or moat. You've probably talked about that a fair bit before as Warren Buffett popularized it, which just means some barrier to entry, some, something that stops someone else coming and doing what they do. A lot of the time for us, that means uh, software companies and technology companies, but it doesn't. It's not exclusively that. Um, A2 Milk's another company I've held for a long time. It's a consumer brand. Uh, consumer brands can be an, another example, but we're looking for something where the business model itself um, is attractive and where it's advantaged over other competitors. And I think that anytime we're investing actively, we're trying to find something the rest of the market's got wrong or mispriced or missed. And when you're investing in growing companies, often something that the market doesn't appreciate is how uh, long and how powerful a competitive advantage can be and how it allows you to expand into other adjacencies and all that kind of good stuff. So we're just looking for things that are mispriced. And that tends to be something where when we do our valuation, we think that the business is more often mispriced. So it's just it's just trying to find the right ponds to fish in where we're going to find those attractive industries. You've become a bit of a hero on Twitter lately over PushPay. Talk to me about the PushPay story and how you identified it and how you valued it and um, mm-hmm. how it's really come come good for you. PushPay is a payments platform for churches, particularly in the US, so that they kind of think of passing around the collection plate in the old days. This allows you to give digitally instead. And also now they've kind of expanded into engagement apps. So every large church in the U.S. will have an app that their congregation can download to engage with the church, and they can also give through that app. So they both kind of um, match each other. It's actually a company from New Zealand, though. So it was one of the fastest-growing companies. I think it was the fastest-growing company in Asia-Pacific or something when I first came across it, which got my attention. Uh, It was still burning cash at that point. But when it first came across my desk, I kind of dismissed it because it's another payments provider that's a very crowded space. um, And it's providing for US churches, which I kind of thought, you know, it's a very small market and maybe not that interesting. But then I kind of dug into it a bit deeper um, and realized actually all those things that made me, that put me off initially as quite attractive because that means other people are probably missing it as well. And actually the economics here are quite incredible. So the US uh, church giving space is very different. It's much larger in Australia. It's a much bigger part of people's lives than it is in Australia and New Zealand. There's $120 billion donated in the US every year. So it's quite a big market. Um, And some of these churches are tens of thousands of people. Uh, The largest would have, I think, 40,000 weekly attendees, so huge mega churches. Uh, and Pushpay provides a, a solution to that that allows them to increase giving, increase engagement with their followers and also just moves moves things from being check and old, old school ways into the modern world. Uh, and it's incredibly sticky um, as a, as a um, kind of payments platform because once you've moved people onto it, they don't really want to go and try and move everyone again. Around a third of all giving is recurring every week through tithing. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's kind of like 
has a lot ticks a lot of the boxes of what we're looking for. Um, and that niche element is also quite um, important because it means they've built their whole business around what is quite a large niche. And I think particularly in Australia and New Zealand, if you're looking at software companies, uh, there are a few examples that are truly global, like maybe Xeros, but a lot of the rest find a really good niche that they can then defend. And that's important because you have to find some reason to be able to defend against Amazon and Apple and Google and everyone else. And so that's something they've done really well. Uh, when I was first recommending it back when I was running Pro, I don't. I think the day before we recommended it, there was zero trades on that ASX, like no no volume <laughs> traded, or maybe a few hundred. And someone asked, and I was just like, "Yep." Um, but we we were able to get it on, and then we continue to add to it over time. And now it's grown a lot. It was around a dollar fifty five back then. I, I don't know what the latest is, um, six something. Um, and it's had a, had a lot more attention recently because it's done really well during um, coronavirus and COVID because basically there's that adoption curve of people moving from checks and in-person giving uh, to the cloud and that um, to digital. And that was already happening, but coronavirus just accelerated it because a lot of these churches now had to go fully digital. So a lot of them are looking at what they can do and it's just um, seeing them bring forward that adoption like we're seeing with online shopping and and everything else so yeah they benefited well They've, they're a profitable company that was the other thing that about 18 months ago they tipped in a profitability and i said you know the story is going to change over the next um, few reporting periods and it's starting to really change started to change like earlier this year and then with this coronavirus bringing forward that adoption has radically um radically changed and had a very big upgrade recently of about 100 percent growth in ebitda or something like that so yeah it's been a been a fun ride and a, a good story um of where you can see like a competitively advantaged company. I flew over to the US, met with churches, um, customers, met with the team, uh, talked to a lot of their competitors and you could just see that they were kind of the leader in the space and that that's really important. It's a great story about how uh, mm-hmm. innovation comes about. And there's been a lot of innovation in um, New Zealand as well that's come about so many companies because Xero is a Kiwi company as well, isn't it? It is, yeah. I think Zero paved the way. So before yeah. that, we'd always, New Zealanders, um, I'm a Kiwi originally, as you, as you probably tell, had a lot of um, pride of being like inventors and had come up with something new but really didn't know how to commercialize it. Mm-hmm. And um, typically a business, if they did start a business, so if they did commercialize it, they build it up to maybe 10 or $20 million and they'd sell and they'd have an amazing life, right? And they'd just go buy a batch, buy a boat, they call it the batch, the boat and the BMW. A batch is like a holiday house in New Zealand. Um, and they would, they'd live a great life. But then Zero kind of came along, I think, Rod Drury, and he said, I'm going to build a, he'd already done that a couple of times. Yeah. And he said, this time I want to build a big billion dollar business. And he basically went out and it was really audacious the way that he did it. He listed when there was like no business and, you know, I had a dollar and now it's whatever it is, 70, $80 but he listed when it was just a big dream and he really sold it and he delivered on it. And I think it showed to a lot of entrepreneurs, Hey, maybe we can set our sites a lot bigger. Um, I think Pushbay is probably one of the next that have been able to do that like a true billion dollar business, but there's a lot more now coming through say, Hey, we can do it from New Zealand. Thanks to the internet. Um, you know, some great internet speeds over there. They're able to connect and kind of bring down that tyranny of distance. So yeah, it's something I watch a lot. I think it's still um, very underappreciated. That's part of the reason that I wanted to make sure New Zealand was in the, in the mandate to be able to buy those companies. So with a company like Pushpay, do, do they reach a certain threshold where suddenly larger investors become interested and then that will have a positive um, effect on the, on the price action? Yeah, that's exactly what happens. So particularly around liquidity, um, once you, there's kind of that trap where no big fund can really buy into a, a smaller growing company because there's just no shares and they don't want to push up the price 30% or something. And Pushbay have now, because they've grown and because they've got more liquidity, as I said, about $4 million worth the last day, day I looked, 
Uh, it means larger funds can more comfortably take those positions. Uh, and yeah, that's ideally um, you get kind of a combination of organic growth and then uh, the share price can re-rate or the multiple, the PE multiple, you might say, can re-rate up because just more people can buy it. So yeah, that's the, the challenge with investing in smaller companies is it's um, they tend to be illiquid when you're buying uh, and you have to kind of get it right. But if you do get it right, more liquidity appears over time. And so, yeah, that can be, it started to work out now with, well with Pushbay. So what's, what are some of the other numbers that you look at when you're um, looking at these companies? Yeah, a lot of it is uh, retention of, of clients. I look at a lot of SaaS and recurring revenue companies. So I want to see how um, or how much of their revenue is truly recurring and then thinking about how they're acquiring customers. Can we just talk a bit about what a SaaS company is? Yeah, absolutely. So um, software as a service. So it's basically offering software via the cloud, which means you have a subscription to access your software every year. So if you've had any annoying pop-ups from Microsoft, they have moved to this model now where you used to buy Microsoft Word and you'd own that forever and they wouldn't bother you again until the next time they tried to upgrade from Word 2003 to 2007 or whatever. And now they've moved every every not every software but it's it's definitely the dominant trend in software is to move to having a recurring monthly or annual subscription and that is a real big revolution in the industry because it allows you to constantly develop um, that software over time allows you to iterate and improve it also means for the business less immediate upfront revenue but this constant ongoing stream of revenues over time and yeah that's that's what's really attractive about SaaS businesses and so many companies are moving to that kind of model aren't they like a zero that's been one of the big differences with zero is that everything is in the cloud they don't have to send a cd out to every client or <laughs> like the old days yeah exactly so almost every software business is moving there or trying to move there there's somewhere it's still harder to do because maybe the software is very big and um, computer intensive um, and so you, it's harder to do it via the cloud but everything's moving there over time and i think we'll move there um, it's the it's the future for sure okay so looking at these companies then um, how are you looking at their numbers because often they they might be almost pre-revenue as well yeah i don't um myself i don't really invest pre-revenue so i wouldn't have got zero when it listed when it was was just an idea but i try to get them a bit later on when they're tipping past what i call a fundamental inflection point so something where the cash flows are going to be a lot better in the future and what i'm looking at though is what i call the unit economics so it just means it's, it sounds like a very fancy term it's just like 101 really it's just for every dollar that you spend on on marketing and production costs how much do you get back so for a dollar of subscription revenue how much does it cost to get that revenue what does it cost you to serve that and then thinking through um yeah how much you can grow that with that basis so zero we owned it from um a few years back and wasn't from pre-revenue but at that stage they were still loss making but if they just stopped marketing spending they would have been profitable effectively you know their recurring revenue was just there you could just stop marketing and it would slowly decline because you know some businesses go out of business etc but it would just stay there for a very long time and i think that's where how i kind of cut through to buy companies that are still unprofitable as if the underlying economics i can see a very clear path the profitability and ideally that um, they're not like dependent on capital markets to go raising. Sometimes I'd be willing to buy a bit earlier while they still would need to raise again. Pushpay was an example of that. I could see that they would need to probably raise one more time. But again, such a great high quality business that I didn't think even in a tough environment that have too much trouble raising. So yeah, that's the way kind of working up from the from the basics, understanding the business really well. That's why I focus on the business model. And it's only then that you can build what I, I build a valuation model. But it's just, again, thinking through the economics of the business. It, it shouldn't be 
too much of a scary thing, just trying to spend a lot of time understanding what the business really does. And yeah, then ultimately I put that into my, my valuation model. ShareSite is an online portfolio tracking tool that automatically records trades, dividends, ETF distributions, and gives you the reporting tools you need to help you manage your portfolio. ShareSite is pleased to extend a special offer to listeners of this podcast. Four months free on an annual premium plan. Go to ShareSite.com slash shares for beginners and sign up now for a free trial before taking advantage of four free months. It'll help you save money at tax time and improve your investing decisions. That's sharesite.com slash shares for beginners. Are you going to be putting a limit on the number of um, shares that the fund will be um, owning? Is there some sort of natural limit there? Yeah, in terms of the number of different companies. Yep. Yeah. So around 15 to 30 is what we've said. So I think 30 would probably be the upper limit. Mm-hmm. And that's just, um, it's more concentrated than most of the industry. Again, some managed funds hold 100 to 200 companies, which was kind of crazy to me. Uh, it's just a matter of how many companies can we have a different view from the market and know really well, because I like to read a lot about the businesses. And I think even 15 to 20 is is pretty good. Some of those um, getting up to 30 would be kind of smaller positions that we might be earlier in understanding. Um, but yeah, kind of keeping it fairly concentrated and being willing to concentrate more on our best ideas if we find something we're really high conviction in. Okay, I'm just going to go to a listener question. Yeah, cool. And I know this listener, he's, um, he's asked a couple of questions before. What he's really specifically looking for is information on bonus shares for management. I think he's worried, he's concerned about the diluting effect this can have on other shareholders. Mm-hmm. Is this something that um, uh, shareholders should be looking at or be concerned about? I think so. I think it. Um, you want to you want to have an idea of how aligned your management team are with with you. And so, a big tick for us is if we find a business which is still led by the founder, or at a second step, maybe someone who acts like a founder. It's not very often that we'd buy a business um, where it's just run by a professional manager who doesn't act in that way. And that typically means they should hold a lot of the business already. And I like to see ideally that they just went out and bought a lot when they became CEO uh, rather than having a lot of option grants because option grants, are they're kind of an okay in between, but they can lead to some distorted behaviors where you're just trying to get the share price up to get your options and that sounds great to get the share price up for a shareholder, but it can mean you don't think about like underlying value creation because it makes you really short term. If you're only there for three years, you only care about that three-year share price. So I think it's something to look at. And I, it's particularly a trap for a lot of these promotional stocks. Some of them are just mind-blowing how much upside they capture. So there was a Fastbrook Robotics company, and I haven't looked at it in a couple of years, but I don't think it's done too well. That I, and it's one of the few companies I sort of negatively spoke about their structure because it was a huge transfer of options. This was a, robot, a 3D, 3D printing um, company that was supposed to print houses. So basically assembling, it's not really printing those, like assembling bricks and putting mortar and automated, which sounds kind of cool and if I got my attention, but they didn't even have a product yet. So they'd be paying out a big tranche of options just for having a working prototype. And then there'd be another big tranche of options if that prototype could build 10 prototype houses. And that's that's not going to reward you as a shareholder. You know, that's just the basics. I don't think that that should be what rewards management. And if they do, if they are successful, it just means that a lot of that future potential goes to the management team and those investors rather than to you as the outside investor. But honestly, when you're getting into that territory, it normally means that you don't have aligned managers. So just the existence of that often, but not always would be enough for me to kind of give some pause and make sure that I'm really on a team that's aligned with 
with me and my best interests. So that that becomes almost an alarm signal for you. Definitely, if there's yeah, if there's a very large number and they're not aligned otherwise, there'd be some exceptions where it's where it's happened. But yeah, it's 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 a red it's an orange flag if not a red flag. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it can create dilution of other shareholders' um, uh, holdings. Is that the case? Yeah, that's right. So if things go well. You kind of think, well, the share price will be up, but the problem is then they issue, they dilute it so much that the share price kind of gets capped. So it's like, if you're going to double the number of shares on issue, then you're it's still the same pizza slice, and your, your your relative share gets cut in half, right? And so that's what you're watching out for. They if they if things go really well, that's good. But if they capture most of the upside, you're kind of taking all that risk of that unproven company, and then they capture a lot of the upside if it works. Okay, well, uh, we'll come to my final question, which is about ethics. Mm. You have certain thoughts on the ethics of uh, corporate behavior and also mm. the ethics in managing funds. Just talk to me a little bit about that and what your, what your beliefs are, your inner, your inner core of beliefs are. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah, something really important to me. When I was a teenager, my family had some negative experience with a financial advisor, kind of put me off the whole industry. I thought I was just going to be kind of an entrepreneur and businessman rather than investing. And it was only... Um, even though I was interested in investing from a very young age, but uh, it was only in my kind of 20s that I really came back to investing when I discovered Warren Buffett and that there were some really ethical people out there. Um, And I think that the problem is just all of those misalignments. It's not that people are inherently bad. And I think there's like this view that it's just a pure moral thing that certain people are greedy and certain aren't. And Sure, there are like some subset of people that are kind of bad apples, but most of the time it's about the structural forces that are acting on you. And if you're in an environment where there isn't good alignment, so you, as I was talking about, like aligning where I want the, the CEO to own a lot of their company, if they don't do that, then there's a misalignment. It's the same with the finance industry. If you are running a fund, you're not investing in yourself. If you're telling people to buy something through advice that you wouldn't do yourself, that's a pretty big misalignment. And once you start down that track, it becomes very easy to um, go massively off course. And I think the um, kind of feedback time in the industry can allow that to go on much longer than it should. Um, And particularly in the smaller end of town, people kind of do it once and then they reappear a few years later in a different name. So a lot of what I do is just trying to weed that out. Um, I do think over time, though, I'm an optimist that it does kind of bend towards um, kind of the better people in the industry. And I think over time, once you have a black mark against your name, you're kind of just done for in terms of like, I'd never deal with someone that I thought had that history. And, you know, you, you get to over time, it builds, I guess, when it starts out, it feels like you can see some people that have been what you'd think are unethical or not in best interest of shareholders or investors, and they still kind of seem to get away with it. Um, but over time, I think you start to know more and more people in the industry. Uh, you get your own kind of reputation and the, the good people kind of attract to each other and talk to each other. So now I have like a really good network of people, some of whom you know really pursue that governance standards and you know be a watchdog and i can just talk to them and ask you know what what do you think about this person or whatever else uh, so yeah i think the the arc of justice does definitely bends towards um doing the right thing and i think that that'd be my biggest advice for people coming into the industry is never ever compromise on that because it really your reputation compounds over time and it takes just one bad decision to to lose that so yeah that would be my my advice for sure Okay, so um, how can people get in touch with you and uh, find out more about uh, Maven Funds Management? Yeah, so they can go to mavenfunds.com.au, C-M-A-V-E-N-F-U-N-D-S.com.au, um, and we have a, they can sign up there to register their interest and be sent the PDS, as I said, to, to read through. 
um, yeah, that's probably the best way to, to keep track. Now, the only other thing is I've had a lot of people say to me, when when's the Three Monkeys uh, podcast coming back? Three Wise Monkeys or Three... Three Wise Monkeys. Three yeah, I had, wise a, had a podcast monkeys. with a couple of friends. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. We we said we'd we you know we always left the door open. There could be some season two or some special episodes. Um, yeah, no no plans on the horizon at the moment, but uh, we'll we'll keep everyone posted if there is ever a future episode. Yeah, actually, I've, I talked to Andrew about it, and um, you, you all realised how hard it is to make a podcast. I believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, we're not envious of the amount of work, particularly Andrew. I guess he was doing a lot of the editing. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> he, he had the hardest part a lot of his time. Yeah, um, yeah, it was a lot, and it was just I think all of us had some different projects going on so particularly in the setup of fun takes a lot of your attention but mm-hmm. yeah so I mean definitely enjoy I think the engagement you get with podcasts is great so keen to do stuff like uh, and you know jumping on yours is a good way to, to reach other people as well yeah let someone else do all the editing for you <laughs> exactly <laughs> make you sound great <laughs> fantastic <laughs> Matt thank you very much to, for coming on Shares for Beginners it's been a real pleasure speaking with you no problem for that absolute pleasure thank you very much Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Soulos for music production with that special Greekalicious flavour. Remember, music always flows, even when the money won't. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.